I never know how to start after that ominous music. Doesn't that sound just a little ominous here? Like, I don't know who picked that, but it's like, it's like okay, where do you go from there? Um, good morning. My name is David Wissen. If you're visiting, I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Grab a Bible, get it in front of you, turn to 1 Corinthians 4. We are in a uh, study this winter, and fair to say winter now, would you agree? Um, we are in a study this winter um, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you need a copy of God's Word, just raise your hands. The ushers will get a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please keep that as a gift from us. And again, as we remind sometimes, if you have 20 of those at home, if you could bring a couple back, that would be awesome. Um, this morning is a reminder, as I prepared this week, of why we go and prefer to go through a book verse by verse and chapter by chapter, because nobody in their right mind would ever choose to preach on 1 Corinthians 4. It is a diabolical, difficult, tough chapter in the middle of kind of this first part of 1 Corinthians. If you haven't been with us or just need the reminder, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, there was a contrast between living by godly wisdom or worldly wisdom. And where the world wants to um, disregard or rebel against authority and live by their feelings and not be judged, the follower of Jesus Christ is willingly submitting himself to an authority in his life, that authority being Jesus Christ and God's word, and he is living according to choices of the will rather than just by his feelings. It's a big difference, worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. In chapter 2, we looked at how a church is supposed to operate when confronted with a worldly culture. And the job of leadership in the church is to declare and proclaim the gospel, not just to save those that are lost, but to encourage the hearts of those who are found. It serves both purposes. We understand at our church that we can prepare, we can preach, we can do everything in our power to do what God's called us to do, but unless the Spirit of God moves and changes hearts and gives understanding, everything we do is for nothing. And that leaves us dependent as teachers for the Spirit to do His part. And your part then is to respond to the, to, uh, the Word of God as it's proclaimed and the Spirit's leading. Chapter 3 last week, um, I was in um, Fresno, California teaching last week. That was really nice, by the way. The, uh, the, the church that I was at had a welcome center and, a, um, and their uh, coffee and all of that. It was set up outside. It was an outside pavilion. That's a great idea. I'm not sure we're going to try it here anytime soon. But, but I was watching on live stream your service here because of the, the delay. And it was interesting, as I was watching the 9 o'clock service, there was 119 other computers watching our services. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool, but it's not like being here, right? And it was good today to hear the story of the Mikas and how God is transforming their lives and to, and to hear you guys sing praises. But the, the truth is that sometimes in churches, um, we start to follow personalities, and Paul's dealing with that problem in chapter 3. And Cal and Ryan taught last week and said, we've really fought against this as a church. We've always had different voices. It's very, very rare for you to attend a church and have absolutely no clue who's going to be preaching that week. And we put you in that position every week on purpose because we want it to be about the message rather than the messenger. And Cal was preaching here last week and he made some lame comment um, <laughs> about some of you prefer older men and, and, and prefer when I preach. And, and that's okay. And others like puppies. That's just how it is. I mean, so, so whatever you prefer... It doesn't matter. And Paul's saying, lay down your preferences. It's not about 
I, it's about we. And, and even last week we announced with Dan and Christy um, the fact that they're transitioning up to Fremont. That is a wonderful move. We celebrate the move. We're excited for Eric and Hatem at the same time because we're going to miss what Dan and Christy brought to our ministry. But you've got to be open-handed knowing when you plant a church you're going to lose your best, right? But it's not about us and our preferences. It's about we and the kingdom. Chapter 5, where we're going to be next week, Paul starts to dig into some real problems in the Corinthian church. There's sexual immorality to the point where they've got a situation where a um, man is sleeping with his stepmom. Problem. As big a problem as the church is doing nothing to deal with it. So you got two things going on in chapter 5. By the time you get to chapter 6, you've got Christians taking other Christians to court in the public courts. And we've got to look at the fact that sometimes it's better to suffer injury and loss and mistreatment than it is to take it into the public and injure the name of Christ. That's chapter 6. And in chapter 7, we look at marriage and we look at sex and we look at remarriage and we look at divorce and the fact that our relationships as followers of Jesus Christ should look different from the relationships in the world. That's where we've been. That's where we're going. But now we got to deal with chapter 4. And it's tough. And it's going to take some work for us to get to what I think God is trying to teach us in chapter 4. But what's in chapter 4 is actually profound. It just took a long time to figure it out. But I think it's important what Paul says in 4 before he addresses the issues because there is a problem before the problem for the Corinthians that he addresses. And I want to dive into it. The big idea this morning is this. The big idea is, does your faith consist of talk or of power? Does your faith consist of talk or of power i'm going to jump in our first point is this you'll see it in your notes if you're taking notes the first point is this our hearts want to play god our hearts want to play god look at verse one this is how we should or this is how one should regard us as servants of christ and stewards of the mystery of god so the people had lined up behind their favorite teachers in chapter 3, and Paul is talking about the apostles, him, Apollos, and Peter, and he's saying, here's how you should regard us. We are simply slaves or servants of Christ, and stewards were entrusted with the mystery of God. He goes on and says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am thereby not acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his or commendation from God. The problem with the human heart is we love to play God. There's something in our hearts that is always trying to take the true God off the throne, and we've got to be humble enough to admit this, and put ourselves in the place of God. And one of the ways we do that, that Paul is addressing in this chapter, is we love to judge and assess other people. We just love to be the judge or the one who assesses. We are constantly forming impressions, making opinions, making judgment calls, and, and by the way, it's impossible to live life without doing that. It's how we're hardwired. We're always judging and making assessments. But what Paul is going to do is he's going to look at the Corinthians and says, what is the basis for how you're judging other people? 
We love to judge and assess. So about three months ago, I thought I had this really, really good idea. I went to Kristen, and I'm like, you know how you're always kind of um, telling me to go to the doctor and I never go get physicals and I never know where my blood pressure is or my cholesterol or any of that kind of stuff. I said, there's this place up in Minnesota, it's called Mayo Clinic, you guys have heard of it. You can go there and you can go through a program that in three days they give you every test that you never wanna have. And I said, why don't we just go get all of this taken care of one place, one time, three days. We were headed out to Fresno. I said, we'll stop in Minneapolis on the way back and we'll just hang out there three days, get all these tests done. So I had about 12 tests and procedures done in three days. Is that enough information? I don't have to go further, do I? Okay, so, so it sounded like a good idea until we got there. And the problem started with the way that I did the flights. We flew out to Fresno, the weather was bad. We were two hours late out of Grand Rapids. We missed our connector in Dallas. We ended up getting diverted from Fresno to LA. We had to drive from LA up to Fresno. We taught there all weekend. We were tired. We flew back to Minneapolis. We arrived at 12.30 a.m. to drive an hour to Rochester, Minnesota, where Mayo is, for a 7 a.m. appointment. Not great travel planning on my part. To make it worse, when we arrived in Minneapolis, we rented a car, put up the dash, picture of the dash, Couple things about the picture, notice I'm not speeding. It was a staged picture. Uh, secondly, don't judge me on my music. My wife was being DJ. And third, if you can see the number below the red, do you see the temperature outside? That's cold. Minus 18 degrees is shockingly cold. I was like, Cal, what's the temperature in Grand Haven? He goes, it's like 10 degrees. I go, this is 28 degrees colder. That's the difference between 80 and like 52, like running around in my shorts and putting a coat on. Like it is so cold at minus 18. And as I sat there in my car saying, this is unbelievable. You go outside, your breath, it, it turns into ice. It just falls to the ground. That's all it does. I'm like, if only the people back home could experience this. And God's answered my prayer. That's your Wednesday. I just want you to know that. So I'm pretty excited about that. Think of me when you're outside on Wednesday, okay? But, but we go there and we've got these appointments and I'm going to doctor after doctor and nurse after nurse. And guess what we're doing? I'm getting assessed. I'm getting evaluated. They take my blood, they take my blood pressure and they're comparing me to uh, norms. And I'm at the point in my life when I go to a doctor, he says, well, you're in pretty good health for a man your age. Like, when did that start? Or, or we would fix this, but at your age, it's elective. <laughs> and I'm like, why, why am I being assessed and compared to a bunch of old men? Like, I don't feel as old as I am, but they're assessing me. They're judging me when I walk into the room. And, and you want to know something true? I'm judging them too. I'm looking at them. I'm saying, does this guy appear competent? Do I believe that he knows what he's doing? Does he sound like he can articulate what's going on? Why does this one doctor look younger than my son? Now I'm suspicious. Like, I'm reading his badge. I'm looking for letters. I don't know what they mean. I just want letters behind the name. I want to know that he's something. And, and we're assessing and evaluating constantly back and forth. A couple things to consider as you make your assessments of other people. Let me give you some biblical guidelines to put on top of this. Matthew 24, 15, or Matthew 25, 14 says this. Jesus is giving a parable and he says, for it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. We all are called to steward different things. 
It would be unfair for me as a, as a soccer coach to take two players, one whom God has gifted with uh, uh, incredible athletic ability and one who doesn't have that same giftedness and expect both of them to perform the same way on the field. That's not fair. I have to assess them according to their abilities. And we need to understand that different people are called to steward different things. The great theologian, Vince Lombardi, said it this way, the measure of who we are is what we do with what we have. The measure of who we are is what we do with what we have. Not everybody's gifted the same way. And Paul is going to probe into what are the things, what are the criteria that the Corinthian church is choosing to judge other people, Paul and the apostles. What is the criteria that they are overlaying to make their determinations? Is it their appearance? Is it their credentials? Is it their job? So it was interesting. I was going into this one appointment and my name was called out from the waiting room and this nurse led me from the waiting room back into the next waiting room. You know what I'm talking about? And then when I was in the next waiting room, another nurse came and talked to me. And as they were walking me back, just even the conversation with the nurse, you're getting assessed. She's like, you know, are you David Wisen? I'm, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's me. And, and then you walk back to the room. She's like, so what do you do for a living? And I told the nurse, this is weird. I said, I'm a wealth manager. And I am a wealth manager. That's what I did for 25 years but that's the term that I use to describe myself, and I still have those responsibilities uh, on top of the pastoring that I do here. So I describe myself as a wealth manager, and I watched the way that she responded to me. Then she went away, and the next nurse came in, and she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. <laughs> that's a whole different response. I think I know why I said wealth manager, because I get tired of dealing with what happens when I say that I'm a pastor. People become really uncomfortable really fast. And for some reason, she's like, well, well, that's interesting. You know, I don't go to church as much as I used to, and I, and I wish I was going to church more, but my husband, he doesn't like to go, and, and you know, my work's had... <laughs> and I was like, I'm not a priest, I'm a pastor. You don't have to confess. <laughs> like, 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 there's some confusion here. And, and it's interesting because just by the title that I gave, people would treat me differently. We have to understand that we're all given different talents, different abilities. Here's the other thing. We don't have all the facts. I remember my wife about 10 years ago when the kids were still home, she wrote a book and it was a fiction novel and she finished the entire book and she gave it to the editor and the editor said, we love the book, we love the story. The problem is you wrote it from an omniscient perspective. You were able to tell the reader what every character was thinking. What I need you to do is go back and write it from a first person perspective. Pick one person in the story and tell the story from their perspective, not knowing what everybody else is thinking. That's really hard to do. And so Kristen rewrote the book, submitted it, got it published that way. But we have to admit that we have a limited perspective. We don't have the omniscient perspective. And sometimes we don't have all the facts. It's interesting, speaking about writing books, in the spring of 2013, there was a new author who debuted his first crime fiction novel. It was called uh, The Cuckoo's Calling. It was released in the spring of 2013. The author's name was Robert Galbraith. The book received good reviews. It had a good um, initial launch over the first three months. It sold 8,500 copies, but by the time summer came, sales had slowed. The week of July 7th, 
of 2013, Amazon recorded exactly 43 copies of his book was sold during that week, which put his book strongly in 4,709th place on Amazon's bestsellers list. The following week, the book jumped to number one in Amazon sales, selling 17,662 copies. From 4,709th place, the next week, number one. What happened? I know you're all thinking Oprah must have recommended it. No, don't spoil the end of the story, okay? That wasn't it. Here, here's what happened. Between the week of July 7th and July 14th, somebody leaked the fact that Robert Galbraith was a pseudonym for another author. The author's real name, who wrote The Cuckoo's Calling, was a gal by the name of J.K. Rowling. You ever heard of that name? Wrote a little series, I think, what was it called? Harry Potter, maybe the best-selling author, I think, of our generation. And all of a sudden, people realized that Robert Galbraith was J.K. Rowling, and they rushed to get her newest book. See, there was one factor that was hidden from the equation that changed everything. And as I've counseled more and more and sat with people and heard their stories, I'm convinced that I don't know what I don't know. And I will sit with a husband, and I'll be hearing about the struggles in the marriage, and I'll be hearing from his perspective, and then I'll say, you know what would be interesting? If your wife would be willing to come in next week, I'd love to talk with her as well. And he gulps. Because that perspective is going to be different than what he's been describing in the last hour. And we need to know that when we make judgments, not everybody is entrusted with the same things. Our perspective is limited. And that creates problems in our assessments. The minor problem is that we judge and assess. I think even a greater problem is often that we live enslaved to other people's constant judgment, evaluations, and assessments of us. You're aware of that, right? When you walk in a room, you're assessing other people, but they're assessing you as well. And we are so burdened by the impressions that we leave and what people think of us that it can paralyze us, it can consume us, it can determine our self-esteem, it can frame our identity, and I'm telling you what, it's dangerous. Speaking in Fresno, I know as a public speaker, I got like 30 to 60 seconds to formulate an opinion on whether that guy's going to decide if he's going to listen to me or not. So right off the gate, I'm trying to formulate an opinion. It's not as important here because you guys know me. If you're new here, sorry. Okay? But as I look around the room and you guys are evaluating and making assessments of me, you understand that I'm making assessments of you as well. Like I'm looking over here at the guy who keeps yawning. I'm like, am I losing the crowd? Like, what's going on? Now, there's nobody over here yawning. I think that guy was over here, but that's a whole different thing. Okay, but I'm, I'm making assessments. You're making assessments. And the reality is, we're held hostage by always trying to impress the other person. It doesn't matter if you have low esteem or self-esteem or high esteem or whether you feel like you are missing the mark or overachieving the mark. For example, um, take, a, take a, a girl who is beautiful. Or first, let's start, start with a girl who doesn't consider herself beautiful. And she walks in the room and she looks at all the other women and she doesn't think that she measures up and that creates a self-esteem problem. She becomes discouraged. She becomes depressed. 
But now take the beautiful girl who walks into the room, knows that she can turn heads, but now she's consumed by this. How long will I be beautiful? Am I at the top of my game? There's an expectation that people think that I'm going to look beautiful. There's nothing sadder than seeing the girl in her 20s that was the supermodel in her 50s. And the problem isn't the age problem. The problem is the surgeries and the plastic surgeries that have desperately been done to hold on to something that became their identity and their self-esteem. Like either side of the equation, whether you feel you don't measure up or whether you feel you do measure up, you're under the pressure of the evaluation at all times. Does that make sense? And what's sad is, is you consider some of the people in our culture that you would, by anybody's standards, say, when we evaluate, that guy is way above the crowd. Even those guys find that they're not happy. It's interesting, John D. Rockefeller said it this way, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. I would barter them all for the days that I sat on an office stool in Cleveland and counted myself rich on $3 a week. Henry Ford said it this way, work is the only pleasure. It is only work that keeps me alive and makes life worth living. I was happier working as a mechanic. One of the commentaries I read this week summed it up this way. He said, this sums up our experience of evaluation. Premature judgments made by self-appointed authorities who possess limited knowledge of the situation and whose opinions hold no true weight. Ever feel the weight of that? One of the actors that I follow, I don't know why, but I do is a guy by the name of Shia LaBeouf. He's 32 years old, he's the same age as my son. Now, I thought he came to fame in the old Transformers movies about eight years ago, but my wife pointed out to me that, oh no, before that he was a, a Disney star. Did you guys know he was a Disney star? Sorry, I don't watch Disney, missed it, okay? But, but Shia LaBeouf at 24 was at the, really, uh, uh, an apex for a young man of his career, and he gave an interview to Vanity Fair. Listen to what he said. He said, sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life, and I get frightened. I know I'm one of the luckiest dudes in America right now. I have a great house. My parents don't have to work. I've got money. I'm famous. But it'll all change, man. You never know. He goes on and says, I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days just don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. If I knew it, I'd fill it, and I'd be on my way. He's continuing to make movies. If you've watched the trajectory of his life, it's been interesting. Last, last summer, he was, he was arrested, um, public intoxication, and he said following his arrest, my outright disrespect for authority is problematic, to say the least, and completely destructive, to say the worst. It is a new low, a low I hope is the bottom. I find it interesting as you look at his quotes, he says, listen, I've arrived, I've got everything that I wanted, but I'm worried that I'm gonna lose it. And there's something deep in my soul that I don't feel worthy. And I'm telling you, living according to others' evaluation always leaves you in this place because it's not a static bar. People are judging you differently at different times, from different perspectives, on different criteria. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, enough with the nonsense. Quit being a judge of me and quit judging one another. Let your judge alone be Jesus. How wonderful and freeing would it be to not be focused on everyone's opinion and evaluations, but be solely focused on what God thinks? 
You wouldn't wear a mask. There wouldn't be duplicity because you can't hide anything from God. You'd have the freedom from that. I could stand up here and preach and not be worried about what you think or whether or not you're engaged or responding. I could step up here and just say, I'm going to do what God's called me to do. That's it. Man, how freeing would it be to live a life that way? And Paul is telling them, don't be trapped by the evaluation of others. I don't even judge myself. I am solely focused on God as my judge. Goes on in verse 6. Here's the second point. He, we love to take credit. We love to be God. Our hearts love that. We love to be judged and we love to take credit. Verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees, verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So in verse 6, when he's saying, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos, what he did back in chapter 3 is he used two analogies. First, he used an analogy of farming. And he says, one of us plants, one of us waters, but it's God who causes the growth. Then he used an analogy about building and saying, I come along and I build upon the foundation and then someone else comes and builds upon my work, but all of it is for naught if the foundation and the cornerstone isn't Jesus Christ. And at the start of this chapter, he says, I'm a slave. I am a steward. I am a servant. My role is to care for the things that God's entrusted to me. I am not important. God is the star of the show. Not caring about what anyone else thinks. Understanding that he is called to be a steward. That the only opinion that matters is God. And now the chapter gets tough. Verse 8. And the reason it gets tough is because um, a pastor is about to go on a rant. You guys ready for this? Here's the good news. For a change, it's not me. Paul is going to go on a rant against the Corinthian church and he's going to expose a frustration and a hurt. And behind that, a real concern for the people in this church that he's planted. Look at what it says in verse 8. It says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. And then he goes on and he says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles his last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor and we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless. When persecuted we endure. When slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the earth. The refuse of all things. Paul is ranting here. And he is contrasting his life with the life of the Corinthian church. And, and I got to explain two things. Here's the first thing. Paul's mad. In verse 8, you notice the um, punctuation at the end of each sentence. What do you see? It's an explanation point. Four times in verse 8, a sentence ends with an explanation, explanation point. 
He's yelling. That's what he's doing. And then he's contrasting. And what's going on here is Paul is delivering an admonishment. He is scolding the people. And do you know why Paul's doing it? Because it's his job. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul asks the people in Thessalonica to hold their leaders in honor and love them for the fact that they're willing to admonish them. And then he goes on to tell the brothers, the people of the church, admonish the idol. In a culture that doesn't accept admonishment, how dare you? Who are you to judge? What gives you the right? As a follower of Jesus Christ, we have got to let people speak truth into our lives, even when it's difficult to hear. It's important. And Paul is saying, you're so quick to judge me, but you consider yourself above judgment. You're rich. You're comfortable. It says in Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I like what David says in Psalm 141. something for us to strive for. David says in Psalm 141, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. David had gotten to the point where he appreciated the friend who would say the hard thing. And by the way, David had some experience in these matters, right? David had sinned. He had slept with another man's wife, Bathsheba. He had had that, that woman's husband murdered, Uriah. And eventually, a prophet of the Lord, Nathan, came to him and said, you're the man. It's your sin. And David was driven to confession and repentance and reconciliation with the Lord. You can read all about it in Psalm 51. And David's on the other side of that saying, I am so thankful that God placed a voice that was willing to risk the relationship to speak truth. Admonishment amongst each other is important. That's what Paul is doing. Here's why he is admonishing them. Because the Corinthian church has chosen to be on the sidelines of the Christian faith. They've chosen to be on the sidelines of the Christian faith. Here's what's happened. Paul has planted the church in Corinth. He's lived there a year and a half. It's a wealthy, affluent city. And then Paul has left Corinth. He's traveled through Asia Minor, planting other churches. And in the process, he has been beaten. He has been dragged before um, courts. He has been imprisoned. Uh, life has not been easy. And as he is suffering for the cause of the gospel, he's creating an embarrassment for the Corinthians. And by the way, this happens all the time. I remember in 2004 when Calvin was a senior, I was one of the assistant coaches with Western Michigan Christian's high school team, and we had a great team with a bunch of great players, and we ended up winning state that year. The next year, the 2005 team was nowhere near as good as the 2004 team, and I'm apologizing to some kids that were on that team. Bear with me, okay? But that 2005 team, there was a senior on that team by the name of Joel DeLoss. And Joel DeLoss was an incredibly gifted soccer player, but he was a great leader, and that kid could work. 
and he would train, and he would work, and he would push, and he would push his teammates. And I can remember doing sprints where one of the little freshman kids would get tired, and Joel would pick him up and run with him under his arm to get him across the finish line in the proper time. And it's interesting, though not anywhere near as talented, the 2005 team repeated his state championships off the will of their captain, Joel DeLoss. And you know what? Here's the truth. Some of the kids on the team didn't like Joel very much because he was being assessed and being measured and the other players were like, we don't have his commitment, we don't have his will, we don't have his drive. And because he was excelling and they were trying to keep up, they became to resent him. This happens in our Christian walk too. I remember when my kids were younger and we would be sitting around the kitchen table and we would have dinner and all of a sudden the conversation would turn to spiritual matters because my wife would shift it there. And we'd be sitting with the kids just having a normal meal and all of a sudden we're talking about spiritual truths and I'm sitting there getting mad. Like, why does everything have to be a teaching moment? I just want to eat my mac and cheese. Like, like why is my wife so intentional about teaching spiritual things to my kid. Can't we just have dinner? And I would honestly get mad because she was much more intentional about parenting than I was. And, and I'm telling you, this is true in our lives. Don't, don't leave me hanging here. Like, don't you sometimes see somebody who is living by the power of God and you're seeing God transform them and it ticks you off by comparison? That's what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were seeing what Paul was doing, what he was doing for the gospel. They weren't willing to do it because they were sideline Christians. And Paul was responding. He says, it's hard for me to believe that you're committed to following Jesus when you're unwilling to suffer for him. Here's three indicators that your faith is just talk. Again, I've spoke about one, the idea of embarrassment over ownership. The idea that you are embarrassed when you see somebody serious about their faith rather than choosing to be there yourself. Here's a second one, criticism over support. That you tend to be critical of other people in their walk with Jesus Christ rather than supporting them. One of my favorite quotes is by President Theodore Roosevelt. He says this, it's, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. But the man who actually strives to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself on a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls that neither know victory nor defeat. And he's begging the Corinthian church, get in the game. Don't, don't let your Christian faith just be talk and not walk. And we're out here giving everything for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're suffering for it. But in our suffering, in our giving everything to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we're knowing the power of the gospel, we're seeing life's change, things are changing, 
And in spite of the suffering, it's worth it. And it's so much better than sitting on the sidelines. He's calling them to step out of the Monday morning quarterback chair of criticism and get in the game. Here's a third one. They were passive rather than active. Are you active in your faith? And I'm not saying go sign up for a small group for the next mission trip or go door to door with your canvassing or whatever. I'm saying, are you living a life of integrity? Are you willing to do what you don't feel like doing and make the hard decision and choice of the will or are you living by your feelings? Is there a hope in the way that you live because your focus is on the gospel and that creates a contrast to the way the rest of the world lives. A lot of quotes this morning. Here's an old dead guy, Aristotle. The only way to avoid criticism is to do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. Nobody likes to be criticized. But the way to avoid criticizing, to being criticized is not to check out of the game. If you were honest with yourself and you were to go to the person closest to you, would they be more likely to be critical of you because you're a fanatic or a hypocrite? Are, are you in the game? And so at this point, here's the last point. Paul is pushing the Corinthians to make a choice. Look at verse 14. It says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, his beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent, you, sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Here's where this whole chapter is landing. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? little sidebar here in this discussion, in this discourse of the Corinthian church, Paul just unlocked what it means to be a godly father. He's saying, I am a father to you because I was the one who planted the church. I was your spiritual father. But in describing his fatherly relationship to the Corinthians, it starts when he, when he uh, refers to them as his beloved children. Fathers, do you love your kids? Do your kids know that they are beloved? Paul's communicating that to his spiritual children. How good are you at saying, I love you to your own kids? The foundation of your relationship with your children must be built not just on love, but the expression of love. He goes on from there and he says, you need to be an example. He says, be imitators of me to the Corinthians church. And in other places, Paul's not asking them to be like him. Paul is imitating Jesus Christ and he's saying, as I imitate Jesus Christ, be imitators of me. In essence, be imitators of Jesus Christ. But he's saying, I'm setting an example. Your relationship with your children starts with love. Then you have to walk the walk. Then he says, I teach. He's teaching. He sent Timothy to remind them of the things that he teaches in all the churches. You can't teach your kids until you're an example to your kids. 
Um, your kids, by the time they reach their teenage years, have an incredible radar on hypocrisy. And I'm telling you, do as I say, not as I do, doesn't fly. Starts with love, being an example, teaching. And then sometimes it leads to having to discipline. And I don't sense in what Paul's saying that he was anxious to be the authoritarian and the disciplinarian to the Corinthian church. He's actually writing them a letter so that he can deal with this before he gets there. He would rather be grandfatherly than fatherly. Do you know the difference? With my grandkids, I don't discipline them. I play with them. I give them whatever they want. I amp them up with sugar and I send them home. I'm grandfatherly. I'm not fatherly where I bear the weight of shaping their character. But as a father, he loves them, he's an example for them, he teaches them, and he's willing to have the hard conversations. And what Paul is doing here, he's appealing to the Corinthian church to lay down their comfortable lifestyle and be imitators of Jesus Christ. He's saying if you want to experience the power of God, if you want to feel him move in your life, if you want to know what joy this world never tastes, Jesus must be your priority. Let me give you three ways to access God's power. Here's the first. Be imitators of Jesus. This is a little bit more complex than a wardrobe choice. It's a little bit more complex than wearing a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? Paul in following Jesus Christ, uses very strong language in 1 Corinthians 4 of how he is perceived by the world. He says, I'm a spectacle. I'm weak. I'm scum of the earth. I, I'm refuse. This is how I am perceived by the world because of his commitment to follow Jesus. It's interesting, as I hear Paul describe himself, I hear the echoes of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 describing our Savior, Jesus Christ, as he prophetically describes the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 53, speaking of Jesus, Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Paul has suffered greatly for the cause of Christ, but he will write later near the end of his life, I count everything this world has to offer as rubbish compared to the unsurpassing wealth of knowing Jesus Christ. Are you close? Are you there? Is that real for you? Here's the second thing. To experience the, the, the power of God, let God be the judge. I am finding one of two things is happening. Either I've just grown, grown incredibly soft or I'm finding that the tone when I counsel is changing. I don't want to be the judge in the counseling room. I don't want to be the judge. I hear the stories. I understand I have a limited perspective. I don't know everything. But what I want to communicate to the people that I'm meeting with is there is a judge. 
and he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful, and I'm going to open God's word, and I'm going to tell you what it says, and I'm going to try to give you the principles and the instruction that I can take from God's word, but I don't want to be here to judge you, but you need to know and be preparing yourself for the reality that there is a judge. Let God be the judge. It doesn't mean that you don't admonish or speak difficult words, but we can let God have his role as an all-knowing creator God. And don't be consumed by the judgment of others. What a wonderful thing it would be to get to where Paul is, where he says, I don't care what you think of me, and I don't even care what I think of me. My consuming thought and passion is, what does God say about me? And I'm going to just tell you, to live this kind of life takes courage. It takes courage because you're swimming against a stream of a culture that is consumed by first impressions and what you think and outside beauty and everything else. But the problem is when we live according to that worldly wisdom, we miss the power of what it means to walk with Jesus. Poet Wilbur Reese said it this way, and this describes sadly too many of our hearts. He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. That describes our churches. That describes our walk. And by not being willing to say, I want to live with a singular focus. What does Jesus think of me? I'm serving him. I'm living for him. We think that to do that would be the greatest sacrifice. And what we miss, that by not being willing to make that sacrifice... We miss the power and the joy of what it means to walk the Christian walk. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I thank you for hard chapters. And I thank you that we can uh, turn to your word and um, wrestle with it. And it'd be my prayer that even in this chapter that you've spoken to some in this room, Father, may we let you be judge. Not just for us, but of us. At the end of the day, there is one opinion that matters. And Father, that's yours. And with that in mind, we thank you for your son who gave us a new identity, who paid the price for our sin, who took our brokenness and traded it for his righteousness. Father, let, let that be our identity. Let that be the motivation behind our activity. Father, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.